And again, thanks you guys so much. Uh, every week, every week, you, you take us to praise the Lord and take us to the throne room. And I appreciate that so much. Uh, we're going to go ahead and, and uh, go ahead and let the, the kiddos take, go on to their, their um, super church. But super church is out this way this time. It's in uh, Mr. Negreen's room to your right, my left. Pastor Don is not able to be here this morning, so we're making some adjustments, and so it's out that way. Have a good time. Say hi to Santa for me. When you say. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, again, we come this morning to, uh, on a Sunday morning to, as, uh, as part of your body as we unite in prayer, as we unite in worship, and uh, that is more than just uh, going through motions and singing, that we are, uh, want to give you glory and proclaim your salvation, proclaim your goodness uh, as to, to the top of our voices with music and with words, and also enjoy the fellowship with brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, we're here um, just for that bond to form between ourselves and between us and you. And Father, we ask that you help us during the season to make room for you and uh, make room inside of our hearts uh, to receive the, the joy and the peace that you offer and uh, in the longings that we have to, um, to have, a, have a life that's pleasing to you and the longing that we have to uh, know you and rest in you. Father, I just ask that you help us not to get lost in the details, but to see the big picture and to see what you're doing. And Father, we also come this morning just bringing our petitions to you. We have so many people in our, in our congregation who are ill, who are gravely ill, and um, we ask for healing, we ask for strength, we ask for hope, and um, more than anything, we ask for your presence that will be felt and be known because, um, because of your love and mercy. And so, Father, we're asking that we receive a blessing this morning from you, a blessing that's full of grace and peace and mercy, and that we will be changed more into the likeness of the Savior. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. We are in the second Sunday of Advent, and I realized last Sunday it kind of just, you know, sometimes you get up here and your mind kind of goes blank. I don't know if that ever happens to you, but it happens to me a lot. Uh, it just, like, what was I talking about? Uh, <clears throat> but I didn't mention exactly very well what, ex what our theme for the Advent this year is. It's as, is, as it is written. Uh, you'll see a lot of things in, the, in the, the Gospels, and they'll say, as it is written in Isaiah or whatever. <clears throat> and so I chose this as the uh, theme for this year uh, because I wanted us to kind of see the threads that run through the Scriptures, the thread that runs through the Scriptures and gets come out and kind of gets tied together in the coming of Jesus and the coming of the Messiah. Because I really think that we need to see this broad perspective if we're to really understand what Christmas is all about and what Christianity is all about. So there's three Sundays here where we're going to look at some passages in the Old Testament that kind of talk about as it is written and this is, what, this is how it is fulfilled, this is how it's completed when Christ comes, when he is born in, in Bethlehem and then all the way to the cross. And so that's what I would like to do is just, just bring that. Last week we looked at Isaiah 64 where Isaiah is, is expressing this longing 
for God to do something and longing for God to, to act. And, uh, and that was the, what is called the prophet's candle, the, prophet of, the candle of hope. And this Sunday, like uh, Kendra mentioned, this is the candle, this is the Bethlehem candle, the candle of peace. Uh, and so we, we look at the Old Testament, and sure enough, almost in every book of the Old Testament, you can't even open without this longing for peace and this proclamation for peace. And then you get to the New Testament, and it is one of the most dominant themes in the New Testament, this peace. Every single letter that Paul wrote begins with, may you, be, may you know the peace of Christ. May the peace of Christ be with you. Every single letter Paul wrote including Hebrews, which I'm not sure Paul wrote it myself, but Hebrews says that. Uh, John says in 2 John, Peter uh, uh, begins his, both of his letters with, may the peace of Christ be with you. And every, every Sunday afternoon, we, we say, you know, go in peace. And it's supposed to be kind of a, uh, a blessing, uh, but it really, most people's mind and mine included, it means that we're dismissed and we can go home. <laughs> but, but that really is meaning a blessing. What I really would like for it to mean is when we go in peace, we actually do go in peace. And so Psalm 85 talks a lot about that, <clears throat> talks about this longing of peace. And if you look at the story that runs through the Bible, I mean, it begins with a garden and it ends in the garden. And in the beginning of the garden in Genesis, we, we are walking with God. We are fully known. We are fully loved. We know God fully. God walks with us. There is this dwelling that takes place. And that is the promise that we see in the last book of the Bible, that it will be a, re, a, a, a revisit to the garden, if you will. And so that is very important. But we all know that we live in a post-Eden world, that we live in a world that is not like the garden. And so there is this longing for peace. Uh, we have every, it seems like there's violence in every corner that we, every time we turn around. Uh, we've got two major wars going on, and then you don't even hear about the Sudan very much. But you've got Israel and Hamas, of course, and you've got Ukraine and, and Russia. You see this, we've got violence in our streets and violence in our cities. Um, I just saw this last week that this, um, the teenager that was, uh, killed four of his classmates in Michigan, was sentenced to life in prison for that. Um, we, we have, uh, I just heard, read a story yesterday about one of the villages in central Mexico that we know uh, had a kind of a sort of a battle there between the farmers and drug cartel. And I think they say something like 20 people died in that, in that confrontation. Uh, about a few months ago, I was at Walmart and uh, saw this guy uh, walking around. He, was, he had a, a, a pistol passed, a pat, strapped to his back here, back belt here. No cart, no, no basket, nothing. He was just simply walking the aisles. And I ran through, I ran across him two or three times, and I thought, is this guy carrying just because he can? Is he, um, is he thinking that he's going to be Clint Eastwood in case something goes down in one of the Walmart? Uh, or is he the next mass shooter? You know, it's all these things run through your mind because that's the atmosphere in the world we live in. And it's, it's violence everywhere. And we think of peace as this absence of violence, but we're going to see that it's more than just that. It's not the absence of anything. In fact, peace is really is what the Bible calls, uses the word shalom. It is the ultimate affirmation of what can be the possibilities that can be. And we don't have to be in the cities. We don't have to be in war zones. We don't have to be in, 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 in Walmart 
to, to know that there's violence. There's also violence in the suburbs and in small towns. Um, we see it in domestic violence. We see it uh, in, in ourselves, in this, this division within ourselves, this, uh, this inner turmoil that we have inside. We see it in, in friendships. We see it in churches, divisions in churches, businesses. There's all kinds of non-peace, unpeace everywhere. Uh, and it's not just involves guns. So when we talk about peace, we are longing for it. And I believe every single person longs for it. I think that's why it's such a dominant theme in the scriptures. We all long for this peace, not just an absence of violence, but this, this sense of wholeness, the sense of, of everything is going to be okay. Uh, it's not just, we talk also about peace and freedom that go together. And it's not just a freedom to do things. I'm free to do this stuff. It's also, when we talk about peace, it's a freedom from things. It's a freedom from anxiety. It's a freedom from fear. It's a freedom from uh, obsessions. It's a freedom from greed. It's a freedom from these things. And that word shalom just means so much more than we can translate it in English. It is a, a fullness and it is a completeness. And there is this longing. All of us long for it. And I believe it is, it is ancient because we see it here in the Psalms. And it is universal. I would say every person in this room, every person in this town longs for it. This shalom is not just an end of the war. It's just not just an end of a conflict. But it means so much more. It means friendship and contentment. It means security. It means health, prosperity, abundance, tranquility, uh, harmony. Harmony with the world. Harmony with creation. Harmony with each other. And it ultimately means, as we see in Psalm 85, salvation itself. It's more than just going to heaven. It is salvation itself. It is not the absence, but it is shalom. It is the ultimate affirmation of what can be. And genuine peace is the peace that God gives. And that's the only place where we can find it. And it is rooted in in. God himself. It is rooted in the Savior. So we're going to look at Psalm 85 and see what he uh, has for us. I think this is, is it not clicking again? <laughs> when I get that finger, just a moment. Oh, there we go. Is that right? Well, we'll go with the title right off the bat here. I was, all, all it is is the words on a screen, so it's not that big a deal. So it's, it's just text on a screen. Uh, the, the, the title of the psalm comes up here. He says, it's the music director written by the Korahites. Is a psalm. Is a beautiful psalm. And let's see. If it, there we go. Uh, the Korahites. Who were the Korahites? Real quickly, just want to give you some background here. The Korahites were, traced their lineage all the way back to Levi, the priest, Okay. Uh, they were also having to be involved in a, re in a rebellion against Moses, so they kind of have a checkered history. But they kind of come back under the king of David. And David even put them in charge of the gates, of the gates of the temple. And they were to protect. And they were also singers. And you go through the Psalms and you look at the Psalms that these guys wrote. I'm assuming it's one Korahite. Uh, maybe, it was a, maybe it was a community effort. But they wrote songs like, like We Long for You. They're the ones who wrote... As a deer pants for the water, my soul longs for God. They're the ones who wrote that. And their, their psalms are full of praise and, um, 
and genuine petition. And that's their purpose here is to declare the peace of God here. Uh, it is a, it's, a, it's a psalm that's got lots of pairings. You might have noticed that when Grace read it, that it's they pair each other together. They, it was probably written, I'm guessing, around the Babylonian captivity or maybe when they just returned after they were captured by Babylon and, and taken away. They kind of returned to Israel, and I'm, I'm guessing that that's probably what it was because they talk about the good times, uh, but it also could have been about the Exodus. So they're asking the question, where is God in this darkness? Where is God when there is loss? And they're, the, they're answering their own question. The answer is in the midst of the loss. Where is God in the suffering? In the midst of the suffering. Where is God when we need him? He is here. And he starts off with the first two verses. Oh Lord, you showed favor to your hand. You restored the well-being of Jacob. You pardoned the wrongdoing of your people and you forgave their sins. He starts off with the way things used to be. You know, you used to forgive. You used to pardon. You restored us. Everything was good. You, you, you pardoned the wrongdoing. You forgave their sin. This is what you did in the past and we want you to do it again. And I really think this is important that we realize how important memories are. The memories of what, what God has done in the past. I really think this, is, this is, gives us a point of reference that when we're in the midst of suffering, we can look back and say, this is what God has done in the past. And it helps us anticipate the better. That's what hope is. We talked about hope a lot last summer. It's anticipating that things can and will be better. And looking back helps us do that, that we look at that. And it helps us to, to, um, to see this pattern of how God works. And we can kind of understand how God works. It's like, I don't really have a real fear of flying. Uh, my brother, this quintessential macho truck driver from Texas, he's scared to death about flying. Mm. He, he, he will drive his truck to Oregon to see me, but he will not fly. Uh, but I don't really have that fear, but I have to admit that I grip the armrest a little bit tighter when we take off and when we land. You know, there's just something about it. You just kind of hope that everything's okay, you know. But I know that this pattern happens a thousand times a day. And because I know this pattern happens a thousand times a day, I can say, well, odds are this is going to work out okay too. And I think that's one of the reasons we want to look back to see what God has done because it gives us a pattern. And we can say, yeah, I can hold on a little bit tighter, but I've seen this before. And I see this is how God works, and this is what God does. So I think these memories are, are important, but something has gone wrong. In verse 3 to 7, something has gone wrong. There's, uh, there's loss, there's suffering, and this loss and suffering you, you just produces this gamut of emotions, of rage maybe, or resentment, or hatred. And in these verses we see guilt but we also see complaint, and it just produces a ton of emotions. And what's interesting, I mentioned the, um, the lectionary last week. The lectionary is this guide to, to guide churches, mainly in liturgical churches, to read through the scriptures through the year. And they have three, every three years you go through the same passages. And they have these passages that suggest that you do these, you read these passages on the Advent Sundays, etc. Psalm 85 is one of them. And what's interesting is in the lectionary, they omit verses 3 to 7. They, don't, they, they think, you know, those, really, those verses aren't good for Christmas, I guess. 
So we're going we're gonna to ignore those. We want you to just read verses 1 and 2, and then we want you to jump down to 8 and just ignore verses 3 to 7. I think that's crazy. Because the psalm works as a unit. And granted, if I was going to preach through Psalm 119, which I think has 175 verses, I probably wouldn't do the whole psalm. But here, they just pull it out because it's not appropriate for Christmas. And I'm thinking, of course it is. Because this is where God comes through. It's okay to, to, to say this. It's okay to pray these things. And we'll look at it a little bit closely in just a minute. But my point is, I think it's important that we see this because the last section of, of the psalm talks about God's great salvation and peace. Peace from what? We, don't all, we, we know life doesn't go from strength to strength, victory to victory, that there are lots of valleys in here. And he deals with that. And I think we should deal with it. There's, there's basically two, two errors when we view God and his, and his salvation. One is that God is mild. He's this good old soul, never gets upset about anything. The other side says that God is a bully and he terrorizes people into submission. Amen. Both those things are wrong. But we do see that this is real life. And we see the psalmist kind of mixing in complaint and guilt and it's just things are not going well. He says, you withdrew, you withdrew your, all your fury. You turned back from your raging anger. Now restore us, O God, or our deliverer. Do not be displeased with us. Will you stay mad at us forever? Will you remain angry throughout future generations? Literally, that says, will your anger go from generation to generation to generation? Will you not revive us once more? Then your people will rejoice on you, and Lord will show you... How, uh, our Lord, show us your loyal love because bestow on us your deliverance. And what he's saying is, where is this loyal love? Where is this loyal love that you're so famous for? Because we're not seeing it. Where is it? And I think we have to be comfortable with that. We have to be comfortable with that kind of language. We would look at this, some people would look at this and say, oh, this is a lot of unfaith here. This does not look like he is trusting God's loyal love but i would argue this is a declaration of strong faith this is a declaration of bold faith i think he is being bold here this is it's okay to say life sucks sometimes it's okay to say that and this psalmist is saying that that this stinks and and I don't know what to do with it. But he says, this is what the problem is. And one thing I do know about all this is that this is a man. I'm assuming it's a man. Most of the people who did the temple stuff were men. This is a man who is no stranger to God. This is a man who knows God and can speak frankly. And I think that's an example of bold faith. That we can come to God and we can, speak, we can speak truth and faithfully how we feel that this really stinks. Amen. That this is addresses God directly. And he says, you show Hesed before. You showed the Hesed is that loyal love. You've showed this before. But um, we are experiencing misery right now. And I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to act all pious and holy and say, God will take care of it. I'm, a, I'm not worried. We're not going to do that. He says, all that belongs 
even if it's not polite, even if it's not civil, this is what I feel, and this is what I think. And it's okay to say that to God. It's okay to tell him that. He's not tricked. He's not tricked by our false piety or our pretend holiness or when we say, just, I'm just going to read my Bible and trust God. I'm going to try to be nice to God and maybe he'll be nice to me. That's not how it works. He is totally there. And what he says is that if we deliver, if you deliver us, we will be loyal. Usually that word chesed is used for God. It means kind of loyal love. It's, it's another one of those really rich Hebrew words. But here, the chesed belongs to the people, that we will be chesed, that we will be faithful to you. We will be deliverance to you. And he says, he says we will not return to folly we do not want to return to folly. Literally, that says, we will not return to stupidity. We're not going to be stupid again. But we will be loyal to you. Then he moves on. He says that he pleads for great salvation. And then he gives us these elegant pictures of salvation. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word salvation. You know, we've all got kinds of, all kinds of ideas. It's Armageddon. Or it's uh, when the world is wiped out. Or whatever. But the psalmist here gives us these wonderful, elegant pictures of what salvation looks like. That it's time does not heal, but God does the healing. And he begins with verse 8. This is the verse 8 is the fulcrum for this whole psalm. It balances out everything. He says, I will listen to what God the Lord says. Or let me listen or let me hear what God Yahweh says. For he will make peace to his people. What is he listening for? He's listening for peace. Peace for his chesed, his faithful followers. Yet they must not return to their stupid ways. Don't go back. Don't be dumb. And he says certainly his loyal followers will soon experience his salvation. And then his splendor will again, again appear in the land. The Jews know the difference between threats and promises. This is a promise. God is not a bully who terrorizes his people into submission. He gives them a promise and says, this is what I promise. This transformation takes place. It's not because I'm so full of myself and I'm so holy that God's going to cooperate with me. It's because of who he is. That is the way of the Lord it is wholeness. And wholeness means there's end of one thing, there's end of verse 7, and there's a new beginning in verse 8. And then he gives us these wonderful, evocative pictures of what it looks like. Loyal love and faithfulness meet. It's, it's, there's four things here. Righteousness and peace greet each other with a kiss. I just love these pictures. He's saying that loyal love and faithfulness meet. Loyal love is not just emotion. It's not just giddy feelings. It's not just feeling sentimental. It also requires faithfulness. It also requires truth. It also requires commitment. And the same thing, this faithfulness to Jesus, this faithfulness to God, 
is not just this dogged determination. I'm going to grip my teeth and I'm going to remain faithful no matter what. This faithfulness is nurtured and fed by love. Those two have to go together. You can't have one without the other. And then he says, righteousness and peace greet each other with a kiss. That word righteous, sadi, can be justice or righteousness. It's hard. Some people translate it justice. Some people translate it righteousness. I think one of the key points is that when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about relational righteousness. How I relate to God, how I relate to you guys. How we relate to each other. It's not just this personal self-righteous behavior it is a relational word and he says this righteousness must have shalom it's not just legalistic goodness it's goodness with peace and wholeness and the peace and the wholeness must have the sadik must have the justice must have the righteousness those two things go together that's why when you see a lot of peace advocates, they, they sometimes burn out because it's not rooted in the righteousness of God. And I don't know if you remember some of the hippie protests and some of the other protests. You'll hear some of the chants, you know, you know peace with justice or peace without justice is no peace. Justice without peace is no justice. Those kind of chants. And you go, where did they get that? Well, what do you know? They got it from Psalm 85. Peace and justice go together. You can't have peace without justice. And you can't have real justice without peace. Those two have to go together. And the other meaning thing here is this faithfulness grows up from the ground and the righteousness comes down from the sky. And you heard me say this tons of times, lots and lots of times, that what we are looking for in the, when Jesus comes back is not this explosion of the planet. We're looking for earth and heaven being joined together. We even sing about it in our hymns. This is what we're looking for, and this is what the psalmist is saying, that the faithfulness comes up from the ground and the righteousness looks down from the sky and the heaven and earth meet. And that's what we're hoping for. And when Jesus came, and you know, in the book of Mark, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, yeah, it has been launched, but it is obviously not completely fulfilled yet. And that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're waiting for. The faithfulness comes, grows from the ground. The righteousness comes back from the sky. And you know what that looks like? The Garden of Eden. That's what it looks like. And he even goes even further in the last two verses of the psalm. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest and righteousness goes before him or prepares the way for his steps. Remember what the garden was? It flourished. The earth was flourishing and Adam and Eve walked with God. They fully knew him and they were fully known by him. This is the picture that the psalmist is painting. This is what salvation looks like. Righteousness and peace and faithfulness and love, they all go together. And just like in the garden, the Lord will give a, a, a huge harvest. He even uses the same word good that we find in Genesis chapter 1. When God said, like, like there are this art piece here that, you know, this God is good. All this is good. And the psalmist uses the same word here. It is good. 
the land will flourish. The people will flourish. And righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Actually, literally prepares the way for his feet. He will walk with us. I just love this picture. And this is the picture we have to maintain in our minds at, at Christmas. This is, what it's, this is what it's for. It is a wholeness that love and faithfulness together and righteousness and peace together. So we're back at the garden. I don't believe peace can be explained, and I'm trying to do, sort of do that a little bit. I don't think it can be explained. I don't think it can be taught necessarily. I don't think I can tell you, here's the five steps to, uh, to, to perfect peace and shalom. I think it has to be experienced. And so it's going to be hard for me to say, you can do these five steps and you get peace. But what I can say is that it comes from God and, it's, and it has to be experienced. And I firmly believe every single person in this room, every single person in Hood River, every single person on the planet longs, longs for peace. They are all in searching for shalom, wholeness in the mind, in the heart, in fellowship with one and each other, with community, with inner security, with global harmony. And, but underneath all that is because that motivation to seek for peace is because we are fragmented. We are fragmented here and we're fragmented out there, way out there. There is, there is social fragmentation, and we see that in the wars, we see that in divisions, we see that just everywhere we can. Stephen Freeman, uh, a Greek Orthodox priest, he says that we live in a culture, the United States of America, our culture, we live in a culture that is highly religious. And he says that may sound weird because we keep being told that we live in a culture that's highly secular. And he says, no, the further away we get from God, the more religious we become. And he says that our religion, he says, you look around, and our religion, people are dedicated, spiritually devoted to certain things, anything but God. We have red teams and we have blue teams. And they are equally devoted to those teams more than they are to God. We have now, we have Team Palestine, Palestine and we have Team Israel. And we're devoted to these things. Or we're devoted to the fear. We're devoted to whatever. And he says, the further we get away from God, the more religious we become. The more devoted we get to other things, to our business, to even to the good stuff, like our families. Those are good things. But not, until they take, not when they take the place of Yahweh, of Jesus, the Savior. So we have these social fragmentation but we also have the personal fragmentation. We live in a, we live in a whirlwind of possibilities here. Uh, but the dark side of that, that thing, that, that we're, that those many possibilities, is these fragmentation we have personally. We're fragmented with our careers and our families, our activism, our, our church. Um, our personal life is full of division of home and work. and It can be our private life and our public life, our political life, our professional life. But nothing connects. And so we try to get a balance to all these things. And sooner or later, we end up with contradictions, which lead to inconsistencies, which lead to hypocrisies. I heard one guy tell me, he says, you know, I wanted everything, and I got what I wanted. He was in a state of depression, yeah. looking 
for peace. And he says, I wanted everything when I was young, and I got it, and it's destroyed me. And we can start saying, okay, well, it, we'll, we'll pare down our activity, we'll pare down our possessions, or all this stuff, we'll make it life more simple. That's, that's fine, that's a start. But until we realize that genuine peace only comes from God, that's where the peace comes from. Where is this promised peace? In the Savior. The frenzy of life will kill us it will disintegrate us because it kills the roots of wisdom. And if we get all frenzied up, we have no more wisdom. We don't know how to live anymore. And we keep, we even sang about this this morning, we keep waiting for the breakthrough. And Christmas was the breakthrough. That's when the eternal God broke through into time, into the planet, into our lives. And that's where peace is found. I said I wasn't going to give you five steps, but I am going to give you five steps. <laughs> Just take them with a grain of salt. Paul said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's what he told the Colossians in chapter 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So I'm going to, say, I'm going to list, list five things that we can let Christ, how, let Christ rule in our hearts. First of all, let us recognize the unpeace in our own lives and in our hearts. That is painful but it is vital that we start to recognize the unpeace things in our heart. The hatred, the resentment, the deceit, uh, division, the confusion, our emptiness, our depression, our self-righteousness, our frenzy. All those things are violent even though they may not look violent because they play violent with our souls. So first of all, let us recognize the unpeace that's in our own lives. And let me tell you, that is painful, but it is, it is vital. It is essential. Let us take up the cause of peace while realizing that we cannot bring peace to others unless we experience it ourselves. We all talk about wanting to build a culture of peace, but I believe, and this, I believe this is the kingdom strategy, that a culture of peace is built brick by brick by brick. I'm not against marching. I'm not against protest. I'm not against civil disobedience. There, there are things that call for that. But in reality, the culture of peace is going to be built brick by brick, person by person. And we must experience it ourselves before we can pass it on to others. And I tell you, that's why you see so many <clears throat> activists burn out. Let us surrender the myth of self-fulfillment. You can say all these things. I mean, I look at some, some of the things that I would like to do when I retire and some of the hobbies I'd like to pick up. I've, um, <clears throat> uh, one thing, I want to learn how to play the mandolin. I bought uh, Rob Baggy's mandolin years ago, and it sits in the case. <laughs> it's now in my, my, my office. But those are the kind of things, and I keep wanting to do these things, think I'm going to find fulfillment. Those are great things. But know that that's not where the fulfillment lies. Going into all these areas may not be, may be fun, but that's not where you're going to find peace. Let us start with Genesis, recognizing the image of God in others. And I think that's what we need to do with every division we have, whether it's a domestic division, friendship, business, political, any division, 
first of all, recognize the image of God in every person. We start from the garden because that's also where we're headed. Finally, let's disenfranchise the voices that are rewarded for stoking fear and fueling greed. Until we are at peace with ourselves, we will fall prey to the people who are preaching greed and the people who are preaching fear. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's not just the absence of, of guns and battle and wars. It's not the absence of that. Peace is shalom. It is the ultimate affirmation of what can be. And we can have it. And I wish I could say, do this and you will have it. But I think we can have it when we focus in on the Christ. When we find our fulfillment in him and what he's done for us. And we find our fulfillment in serving the kingdom, whether it's in the orchards or in the classroom or, in the, or making spaghetti sauce or baking bread, whatever it is, that's where we find peace. And that's how we connect everything, is serving the kingdom. And you may have to say no to a few things. That's okay. But if you say yes to the kingdom, the promised peace will come. And it won't be perfect. It won't be perfect till Christ comes back. But we can experience it now, I believe. That genuine peace comes from the Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the peace that you promise. And we admit that we uh, get sidetracked. I admit that I struggle with this. That I get drowning and I get passionate about the wrong things. Father, this is what you promised. And so we're going to call you on it and ask that you give it to us. That we know how to experience it and we receive this gift from you. In the name of Jesus, amen.